0: it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and uh, this episode, in honor of the yard site of Rabbi Yitzchak Schneerson, today the Chaf of 20th day of Av. And this episode is dedicated by the Butler family of Crown Heights in honor of Chafav, the yard site of the Rebbe's father, Reblevi Yitzchak Schneerson. It is actually his 78th yard site. Um, and he was born in 1878. He passed away in exile in Kazakhstan in 1944. He was known, his name was Rebbe Levi Yitzchak, but he was known as Reblevik. Um, So sometimes I'll refer to him as Reb but usually I'll refer to him as Reb Levi Yitzchak. It's just easier for me. It's a fascinating story, a very special story, a very compelling one as well, and it really resonated with me, and I think that it will be of interest to our listeners as well. There's quite a few great sources about him. There's a book about him in Hebrew, a three-volume book called Told Levi Yitzchak, Three full volumes, a pretty uh, impressive accomplishment um, and a biography of one individual. In English, it was adapted into English from the Hebrew, three volume into a one-volume English one. There's also his wife, the Rebbe's mother, um, Rebbe Tzenchana. uh, She wrote memoirs, and those are available as well. And what I found to be the two most compelling components of his story, of course this is just my opinion, is that, is that we have these two incredible sources. One is Rebetz and aforementioned memoirs, as it provides a first-hand account of the events as she witnessed it and then later recorded it, wrote it down. So you have here an eyewitness and a major player actually in most of the events of his adult life and his exile and his arrest and and eventually she joins him she goes ahead she doesn't stay in Ukraine it probably saved her life because the nazis invaded that area shortly uh, afterwards but she chooses to join her husband out in his exile and and cares for him and and therefore she's writing the writing a first hand account um, so that's that's one great source, and then and then in this Toldes uh, Levi Yitzchak book, he the author cites at length um, ex- quite extensive length the excerpts of transcripts of uh, and, and KVD's interrogations of this Reb, Levick, Reb Levi Yitzchak following his arrest and when he was in prison um, in. Uh, in Ukraine, in in and Kiev, Kharkov, wherever he was, um, so they 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 the, those became declassified and accessible following the fall of the Iron Curtain. All the transcripts of the NKVD, and the authors of this book really enhanced the narrative by incorporating these uh, extensive excerpts of the interrogations, and these two really give an inside. I'm sorry, these um, transcripts really give an inside look as to what the Soviet interrogators were after, how they viewed religious activity and religious functionaries during this time period, during Stalinist Soviet Union in the 1920s and 30s, and what means they used in order to prosecute, in order to interrogate, and in order to obtain confessions and evidence from the prisoner. Um, that's all on the Soviet end, and and. It, already makes it quite valuable and quite an interesting story. What makes it an even more compelling story is the prisoner's state of mind. How does Rebbe Levi Yitzchak answer the questions? What information does he choose to share? How he wisely and deftly avoids incriminating himself or others? Um, Any people who he mentions or or, uh, talks about interactions with are usually deceased people or people who have long Emigrated from the Soviet Union, so in a sense, he's protecting people and never really uh, doing what the what the NKVD wants, which would be for him to incriminate others. Um, you know, I wonder. It's it's, it's uh, you know he doesn't really uh, provide the information that they're looking for. He comes out looking at, from these transcripts as a real hero, hero in a real sense, as someone who did not succumb to the very tough interrogation methods of the NKVD, the Soviet secret police in Stalinist Soviet Union. I wonder, uh, in general, how many of the prisoners of the NKVD succeeded as much as he did um, in doing so. And what's even more amazing is that somehow it ultimately sort of worked. Um, he was not sentenced to death. He did not have a show trial. He was not sent to Siberia or prison or even a long sentence. It was it was an exile to Kazakhstan for five years, a five year exile, which was quite a challenge by all accounts. He definitely didn't have it easy there. It definitely very detrimental to his health. It probably led to his somewhat untimely passing. So definitely was a very, very difficult situation that he was in. I'm not minimizing it at all. It's just that in the Soviet Union then there are many others who um, were sentenced to death or to long prison sentences in Siberia. And here, very likely, because if you go through these transcripts, it's very likely because he did not uh, ever, you know, g- give a confession. He wisely was able to navigate through the NKVD interrogation that probably was able to uh, to uh, help him in the long run. Um, it, I will utilize these two sources, um, both the memoirs of and Chana and the transcripts of the NKVD in a bit of a different way than I usually do in the podcast, because I want to be able to give expression to the authentic atmosphere that it generates by reading directly from them. I want to cite them verbatim, word for word, for pages. Um, I, I find it fascinating, and I think that it speaks for itself, and I think that uh, that uh, our listeners will We'll find that, uh, you know, that would enhance uh, the narrative as well. The only caveat is that the originals of these transcripts are in Russian, um, and I don't read Russian, and I don't know how many listeners know Russian. It was obviously translated into Hebrew for the Hebrew book, but then the English book was translated directly from the Hebrew, not from the original Russian. So it has gone through two translations and inevitably things are lost in the translation here. So there's going to be things doubly lost and they are excerpts and you, you don't have the full context, obviously. So it will lose some of its flavor, but that's the reality of translations and we deal with what we have. Another point that I want to make is that there are many facets of his personality and many aspects of Rebbe Yitzchak Schneerson's story to explore. His rabbinate in Yakutorenislav, which is also known at the time as Dnipropetrovsk. Right, I will probably never be able to pronounce that name correctly, so I'm not going to even try. Today, it's known as Dnipro, which I think they changed the name just to make it easier for people like me to be able to pronounce the name of the city. It's a city in southern Ukraine. Um, so, is it the southern area of the Russian of Z- uh, originally Tsarist Empire, and then later on the Soviet Union at the time. That would be one aspect. He had a long and a 30-year rabbinical career in Yekater- Yekateran... whatever, Slav. Um, another aspect would be his operations under the Soviet regime at pre- attempts at preserving traditional Jewish life after the revolution, of continuing the shul, of continuing to raise money for charitable purposes, of continuing to have matzah baked, of building a mikveh, of having the minyan and yantif and simchas and parim and the yamim and. And really, a, a, a trying to maintain at sometimes even a vibrant Jewish life, or at least some sort of semblance of a religious life, under extremely challenging conditions. Especially as the 1930s wore on, that itself would make for an incredible chapter of his story. Another um, aspect of his life would be to examine his arrest and interrogation by the NKVD, what I just described, which we will delve into. And then, of course, his exile into Kazakhstan, to a tiny, isolated, end-of-the-world, forsaken village called Chili or Chili or something along those lines. Um, And then, finally, when his five-year sentence is over, towards the end of the war, um, he spends his last few months of his life due to his wife's uh, lobbying and arranging in Almaty, uh, Alma at the time, um, the largest city, and then at that time the capital of Kazakhstan where there was this Jewish community, so the last few la- months of his life he did uh, have a little bit more of a, you know, more of a semblance of, of, of Jewish life, and he was appointed the Rabbi of shul, even though he was already sick and dying at the time, um, seems of, of cancer, uh, that's what it seems to be. It doesn't explicitly say anywhere which disease he was suffering from at the time. Um, so there's so much to talk about, really. And But I'm going to want to focus on specific points as they're brought out in the interrogation transcripts of the NKVD, as well as the memoirs of his wife, Rebbe Chana. And I guess we'll have to leave the rest of his story for another time, or for the listeners of Jewish History Soundbites to do the research and read the books on their own, which is also a possibility because these books are, you know, easily accessible and uh, they're quite an interesting read. So, so you know, if you walk out of this episode and you say, "Hey, you did, you didn't speak about this, you didn't speak about that," well, that definitely was because. I chose to to delve into certain things more than others. Another curiosity I found throughout the latter part of the story of his exile is the lack of any mention whatsoever to the World War II raging. It's as if the war doesn't exist. The invasion of the Soviet Union by Nazi Germany. The Holocaust in the Soviet Union. The fact that his former community in that whole area... Of Ukraine falls under the Nazi occupation, and the Jews are wiped out in mass graves, shot by the Nazis and their Ukrainian collaborator, collaborators. There's no mention of it whatsoever in in the books and in the memoirs and in the any part of the story. And the, what I understood it from it was, is that that is that is the reality that he's living in. And we're trying to recreate that. Reality of this exile is tucked away in this dreadful exile with such an isolation deep into Kazakhstan and increasingly poor health and in a very challenging situation facing starvation and a limitation on what he's allowed to do and where he's allowed to go and he's barely livable conditions in the housing that he has and he's lucky that his wife joins him and she, she helps him out, tries to obtain food for him and care for his health. She even goes out, we'll speak about it, she even goes out into the fields and collects herbs and grinds them into a potion to be able to create homemade ink of different shades and different colors so he can write his chidushi Torah, he can write his, his thoughts and scholarship in all areas of to be just to be able to continue living. And these are the conditions they're living in. And in that reality and in that context, the whole, the whole war doesn't even exist. The whole war is, is on the back burner. And even things like the Holocaust, which they only find out about later, it's, it, it, given their conditions that he's in, in this exile, it's so overwhelming and that all those accompanying ills, so it wasn't able to register the wider context of what's going on in World War II and the Holocaust at the time, which I find quite, quite fascinating, because we always assume that World War II and the Holocaust would be the dominant agenda on anyone's agenda, and here you can have a situation where people are facing other issues, and therefore they have their own peckle, so to speak, to deal with. Um, so if we go back a little bit to his biography before we get to the part where he's under the Soviets, so he's a. If Rabbi Yitzchak Schneerson is, of course, a he's born, like I said, in 1878, and he's a descendant of Ramanach Mendel Schneerson, who he names his well-known and prestigious son, the future rebbe, after his illustrious uh, 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 ancestor, the Tzemach Tzedek, the third rebbe of Chabad Lubavitch. And the Tzemach Sedek has quite a few sons and his oldest son was Baruch Shalom um, and he's the only one who stayed in Lubavitch when his youngest brother the Maharash uh, became the Rebbe in Lubavitch while most of the other brothers established their own Chabad courts in other cities across the Russian Pale of Settlement in 18 in the 1860s so Baruch Shalom stays in Lubavitch with his youngest brother and he does not become a rebbe in his own right. Or he does not establish a court. So it's an interesting story, as the unique among all the children of the tzemach tzadek. And in fact, he's the oldest child. He's he had he had known his grandfather, the, the great grandfather, the alter rebbe. He had known his grandfather, the Mittler rebbe. Um, so he's a you know very important uh, 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 you know piece of the, of the chain of the links to the earliest. Uh, um, Chabad uh, leaders. His son, Reb Baruch Shalom's son, was Reb Yitzchak, who passed away at a very young age. He was in his 40s. And our subject uh, is named for this grandfather. And um, his son was Reb Baruch Schneir. Reb Baruch Schneir was a prominent chastid, he's rabbinical leader in Russia. And his son is Reblevi Levi Yitzchak. This our story here, Reb Levik. And he emerges as a young Torah scholar, both as a paisik. Because a very prominent Paisic in Russia. He'd later receive Halachic queries from other countries around the around Europe as one and especially when he was a rabbi in the Soviet Union in Yakteranislav. He's one of the last practicing rabbis in the Soviet Union, including divorce questions, Aguna questions, kashras, mikvah, other Halachic issues. And as well as in the mystical areas of Torah, he becomes quite a renowned scholar as well. In Kabbalah and Hasidic teachings, he seemed to have been quite an impressive individual, a studious diligence in studying all areas of Torah, and an eventual mastery of it all as well. And he received his rabbinical ordination, given his Chabad background, this is one of the most interesting curiosities of his rabbinical career, is that according to his wife, Rebbe Chana, in her memoirs, she states... That he received, her husband received his smicha from two of the greatest Lithuanian Torah scholars of the time, Rabbi Leo Chaim Ezel of Lodz and Rabbi Chaim Brisker, uh, two Voloshin uh, products. Rabbi Chaim Brisker, of course, is even a Rosh Hashanah in so it seems a little bit odd, but it, yet it does seem to be the case that he uh, received his smicha from them. He goes on to marry Chana Yanovsky. Who is the daughter of Rameer Shloemi Yanovsky? was the rabbi of Nikolaev, also in southern Russia, in Ukraine. He was a very prominent Hasid, and also he composed Hasidic melodies. In fact, one of the most famous ones is the Rachmana de Ane, a very popular Chabad song until this very day. This is the Rebbe's grandfather, of course, Rameer Shloemi Yanovsky, and the Rachmana de Ane. And uh, you can you can find the song if you're not familiar with it. I don't want to sing it here on the podcast because you're supposed to be enjoying this uh, this podcast. So, But it's a beautiful song. And um, he gets married in 1900. And Reb uh, settles down in Nikolaev. He resides there following his marriage. And that's where his children are, are born. Of course, his oldest becomes the, is, is the Rebbe. Um, and... Uh, He's, it's followed by Reb Doivber, who was later killed by the Nazis. And there's a third son of Israel, Arye Leib, who eventually emigrated to the Holy Land. He gets appointed to the rabbinate in in um in 1909. This is in Tsarist Russia. This is before World War I, so he's already a practicing rabbi. He's not officially the rabbi of the town until 1921, which is already after the Bolshevik Revolution, but he is a practicing rabbi in the town already from 1909. So he's a rabbi, his rabbinical experiences in the old rush. He's very close with his cousin, the Rashab, the fifth Rebbe of Chabad. And he's, the, the Rashab trusts him for many issues. He sends him on, for rabbinical conferences and for other missions, allegedly involved in the Baylis trial as well. Um, and he's, he's a, considered very prominent in, in Chabad Lubavitch at the time by the Rashab. And he stays there during World War I and then in the early Soviet years as well. And as things get hard, I meaning he's continuing to maintain his regular rabbinical lifestyle even despite the fact that it was the Bolshevik revolution, and he's still leading a community, he still has the shul open, he still is trying to maintain as much of a religious life as possible. It did get difficult, and it gets more and more challenging as time goes on, as the 1920s progresses. And at one point he did consider emigration from the Soviet Union, but then he decided against it. He said a fascinating thing, and I quote, If I were to emigrate, there would be no more kosher meat, no more mikveh, It would be the end of all religious services. I don't think that anyone would replace me in these functions. Therefore, is it not absolutely forbidden for me to leave the country and abandon all of this? And he chooses to stay. He did get visas to the United States. He did get visas to to Palestine. And he turned them down. He decided to stay. So he's one of those few who's courageous enough to stay through it all. And eventually he is uh, arrested by the Soviets. In fact, I'm going to use a um, <clears throat> a uh, long citation from the memoirs of his wife, like I promised at this point, Rabbi Zanchana Schneerson, the Rebbe's mother, and Rabbi, Rabbi Yitzchak's uh, wife. And in her memoir she records how the NKVD came into their house one night in 1939 and started to... Um, um, begin the process of the arrest. And this is what she writes. They rummaged through and searched all the books, which were organized in five large bookcases, not missing even one. One of the agents was a lettered individual, and when a book seemed suspicious to them, they consulted with him as an expert. They rifled through all works on Kabbalah, halachic response rabbinic correspondence, and extensive correspondence from abroad by letter and telegram. They confiscated letters from the Rebbe, the Rashab of righteous memory, my husband's smicha certificates from Rabbi Yeo Chaim Meizel of Ludge and Rab Chaim of Brisk, a petition from the community of Yafo, where he and that he serve as the chief rabbi with the visas for the entire family, correspondence with the Joint Distribution Committee concerning financial aid for the Yakhtarenislav province, and other such documents. In a separate bookcase, among rare volumes, lay a book which included a line. Handwritten by the Alter Rebbe and a complete bound manuscript volume of Hasidic discourses, handwritten by the Tzemach Tzedek. These they sealed with several seals, and I let them so, and I left them so untouched until I eventually moved away. As for my husband's own Hasidic manuscripts, which numbered thousands of pages, they deliberated among themselves, eventually tying them up in a bundle and leaving them behind. Three of them worked unceasingly, not stopping for even a moment. At six o'clock in the morning. After they had searched all the rooms, the senior one ordered Rebbe get dressed and come with us. It was eight days before Pesach, knowing full well that he would not be home for the holiday. My husband asked me to be permitted, asked to be permitted to take along two kilograms of matzah, which lay in a bundle. They allowed him this request. I asked them how I would know where he is, that I could bring him some money and food. They told me to come to police headquarters at two o'clock the next afternoon, where I would be told everything. The next day. I went there, but alas, I learned nothing. I pleaded to be allowed to bring him something, but they responded that he was already not there. Seeing the gravity of the situation, I submitted a statement to the prosecutor declaring that my husband was ill. If I will not be permitted to bring him food from home, he won't eat anything on Pesach. I therefore requested permission to uh, to bring him food from my home. On this request, I received a formal response. You will not be allowed to do this. However, in accordance with the law, All the food he needs is cooked for him in prison. On the arrest warrant, I noticed the signature of the supervisor responsible for my husband. So twice every day, morning and evening, I telephoned him at the NKVD office. Every time he gave me the best reports that my husband was being cared for and that he sits and reads from the sitter which he had brought with him. This is how I continued... For five long months, every ten days, as his turn came, I would go to the prison to bring him food or change of clothing, but they would always tell me that he was not there, although the prosecutor would tell me that he was. A month before my uh, my husband's arrest, I noticed two scoundrels had begun to wander around near our courtyard all day until late at night, carefully scrutinizing everything they saw. At first, I had dismissed my fears as speculative, but a month later, I understood all too well what they had been doing. On Purim, before his arrest, a large crowd had celebrated in our home until six o'clock in the morning. This is 1939, by the way. Besides for the older people, there were a good number of young people, including several university students, for whom it was absolutely forbidden to be present at such a gathering. My husband delivered many Torah discourses with great passion, and the crowd was filled with joy and with feelings of devotion to him. There was also dancing, something which people were afraid to even think of in those days. For some reason, this time it was difficult for them to part from my husband. Later it occurred to me that they may have had a premonition that this was the last time they were spending with him. On that night above the arrest, when they finally left the house, they did not leave all at once, but rather two or three at a time I'm sorry, not the arrest uh, Purim, that Purim, excuse me. When they finally left the house, they did not leave all at once, but rather two or three at a time in order not to attract attention. Um, when I went outside, I saw the two scoundrels loiter- loitering on the street. The day after the arrest, they disappeared, and they th- indeed they must have been assigned to observe the goings on at our home. Um, the the so it's it's that's, that's one excerpt, and she also goes on to describe it's interesting about um, uh, the uh, how the, she tried to get the matzah for Pesach, and um, she. Um, he said, she writes how when he was before his arrest, he had arranged the baking of matzah in, in, in Russia, in, in the Soviet Union, excuse, excuse me. Um, he, she, I'll, maybe I'll read a piece of that also. It's very interesting. Um, the uh, situation where there was no matzah in the Soviet Union, again, this is before his arrest. Um, "...allowed my husband no rest. He took it upon himself to make kosher matzah available to anyone who wanted to obtain them. He set himself to work. He koshered the two largest mills, acquired new sifters, and set up Pesach supervision using many supervisors. Um, My husband even sent a letter to the government detailing ten requirements to be implemented at the baking and selling of the matzah, along with the, the demand that everything he or the rabbis he had appointed would instruct must be followed." They replied that all his requirements would be met and that regular flour from the market would not be used. During that time, the population was fed using ration cards. Every citizen was given a mere 30 grams of bread per day, and new sacks could not be obtained by even the highest institutions. But in Dnepet right, Yachtereneslav, in order to provide the Jews with kosher matzah, the government provided thousands of brand new sacks of, and white flour, while everyone else was given only black bread. The outcome was that all that people from all over Ukra- Ukraine and White Russia, and from even from Moscow and Leningrad as well, traveled to to Dnepret- where they were to obtain matzah. All the synagogues were stacked with crates waiting to be filled with the matzah. On Friday afternoons, all the bakeries would telephone to ask what time they must finish baking before Shabbos and what time after Shabbos they could fire up the ovens again. They would also inquire on the procedure to be followed when drawing ma- Mayim shelano All this took place, let us not forget, during a time when a private individual who wished to follow a religious lifestyle to keep Shabbos as much as possible was forced to hide in total secrecy so that no neighbor or anyone else would notice. And she goes on and on and on and on. It's really incredible. Um... What type of you know, situation that he was, that he was able to, to uh, bake matzah in Soviet Russia with the permission, seemingly, from the Soviet government. How he was able to pull that off is beyond anyone's imagination. But uh, now, because I've read quite extensively from her memoirs, so we digressed. And now we're going to get back to his arrest in March 1939 and what happens by the interrogation. So he's interrogated over the course of several weeks. Um, and it's interesting, at, uh, at one of the sessions, I'm going to quote from the English translation of the Hebrew translation of the Russian transcripts. The NKVD interrogator is asking him, What do you know of the clandestine minyanim and Jewish religious schools? And he answers, obliviously like answers, I know nothing of the existence of illegal minyanim. And Jewish religious schools. Rabbi Yosef Schneerson founded yeshivas in cities throughout the Soviet Union. What do you know about them? I don't know where they are located or who runs them. In what year and from where did you receive aid for the Jewish community of Yekaterinoslav? Yekater- I don't recall when we received aid for the Jewish community of Yekaterinoslav. It may have been when the American Relief Administration was fun- was, was functioning. Mutskin, who's deceased, the chairman of our community, received aid for the community through, the, uh, through this organization, but I don't know more than that. What do you know about monetary aid that came to Soviet Jews from abroad? I know of various foreign organizations that helped the hungry in the USSR, but I have no contact with them and I don't know any specifics. I remember that approximately 1932 to 1934, I heard of an organization based in London that helped the Jews, the Russian needy. Their contact in men was Wenzelbaum of Kiev. When I learned of this, I contacted our synagogue representatives and they helped me compile a list of needy families. And he goes on and on and on and on. It's, uh, that's, that's one interesting one. And then there's another session um, where they start asking him, um, Tell the interrogation board about your involvement in the building of an illegal mikveh in Yekaterinoslav." When the so he answers. When the mikveh was closed in 1929, a few religious Jews began demanding that I open an illegal mikveh. When the synagogue on Kontsovitsky Street acceded to this request, I took an active role in building a mikveh in the synagogue courtyard. This was done without government authorization. Who funded the building project? The synagogue board and I raised money from individual religious Jews. Why were you involved in this illegal activity? I never imagined that a mikveh was an anti-Soviet in nature or that the government had banned them. For example, I know that in Moscow the Soviet government gave explicit permission to build a mikveh. In Kharkov the mikveh is still open. I thought a mikveh is fine and there is nothing anti-Soviet about it. Regarding building permits, that was the responsibility of the synagogue, not me. For how long was this illegal mikveh in operation? We began building in August of 1936. The mikveh opened in February or March of 1937 and operated for four months. So that was another session. Um, then there's uh, another one here. Um, there's one. They ask him, tell us all you know about the illegal charity box in your synagogue. So he says, all I know is that we had a charity box where people deposited their contributions. And then you go through this entire interrogation about the tzedakah box in his shul. Um, there was a, a, another one where they ask him, where they start like really, you know, being, being forceful with him. They say to him, you refuse to finally express regret for your actions. You continue to fight the Soviet government. Stop your hateful activities ar- already. Tell us openly about all your misdeeds. And he answers, with, uh, you know, very resolute. I was never involved in hateful activities, and I never participated in in any anti-Soviet conversations. Um, You still maintain a firm refusal to tell us about your participation in illegal charity collections throughout the synagogues of Yekaterinislav. We recommend you stop this stubbornness and tell us the honest truth about everything. I never participated in anything illegal. I wasn't even involved. I don't know a thing about illegal charity collections. All I know is that charity is collected in all synagogues. I testified about this earlier. So you plan to refuse answering about your anti-Soviet activities? I'm not hiding anything from the questioners because I didn't participate in anything considered anti-Soviet. So um, he, he keeps on going back and they're like stonewalled. They can't get him to confess. He doesn't respond. Um, he has... Uh, he has. They have another session, a much later session. This is already in July 1939. They ask him as follows: Before Pesach of 1938, was there a meeting held in your in your home by community leaders who wanted to provide matzah for the needy? Yes, there was such a meeting. The organization that facilitates bread baking had been designated to take charge of matzah baking, but they stopped baking matzah altogether since this threatened the availability of matzahs for Jews in Ukraine. A meeting was arranged in my home. Where we discussed the current situation, we reached a unanimous agreement to send a telegram to the government official in charge of this department, asking him to authorize the baking and selling of matzahs. So you're saying that you didn't have anything to do with the telegram? I was involved in the discussions and gave suggestions how to compose the exact wording of the telegram. And he says there was meetings in 1935 and 1933, 1934, um, and that they arranged matzahs and the. Uh, they go on and on about the matzahs. Then he asks him about minyanim and shuls. They don't stop. They ask about it. All this is considered anti-Soviet activity. And um, they finally can't really get him on anything. So they exile him to Chile or Chile. I'm not sure how to pronounce it in Kazakhstan. Um, the Rebetzin eventually joins him there. She grinds herbs in order to make them into homemade ink, which came out in all kinds of different colors to record his Torah thoughts. And uh, they had a very rough life there. His health deteriorated. He didn't have a a minion, of course. You know, he was isolated. He very alone. Uh, You know, eventually there were some refugees who made it there. So he had some Jewish contacts. Um, And uh, as his health got worse, so his Rebetzin, who literally didn't leave a single stone unturned, she kept on traveling and lobbying and, and going to this government office in Moscow and here and there, um, to try to get her husband released, and at the end of the five-year sentence, she was able to uh, get him to go to to be uh, to be in Almaty, um, then Alma Ata, the then it was the capital. Today, it's the largest city in Kazakhstan, and they had a Jewish community of both locals and of refugees who had run away from the Nazis. There was quite a significant Jewish community with active shuls and active Jewish life, and there was a very, very warm reception for him there. So in his last months in life, when he was already uh, suffering from, I think, cancer, um, and, and he's essentially he's dying, but at least he was in uh, a, um, a, uh, a more comfortable situation out in, in uh, alma um, his song that he composed is the main HaKafis Simchas Torah song that is sung in Chabad until today. So Rebbe Levek is leaves a very good imprint. Also the various Chidusha um, Torah that were salvaged and were printed and published as his Torah. And then even another part of his legacy is that in recent years, uh, there's been visits to his cover out in Alma Almatei. Alma in Kazakhstan. I haven't made a tour yet there um, uh, for Chaf of, but maybe we'll get a group together and we'll be able to go there as well. So, like I said, there's a lot more to say, especially about his exile and his later years and what it was like living out in Kazakhstan throughout the years of exile and loneliness um, and um, plenty more to say about his his, uh, life, but this is just a glimpse of this great man who did not Uh, Did not give in to the Soviets, did not back down, stayed with his community, stayed maintaining a religious life, and paid the ultimate price for it. Went into exile, his health deteriorated, and he passed away uh, uh, relatively young. So this was... Uh, yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoyed.